Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. It's only been five weeks since we launched our investigation into Catalina's murder. In that very short period of time, my view on the case has changed dramatically. New information and new witness statements are finally beginning to paint a much clearer picture of what happened on that Tuesday morning. The process has been a struggle at times. With so many conflicting and changing stories, it's been difficult for me to track what happened. And it's been even more difficult to try to relay that information to you using only words. If you're feeling a bit confused at this point, don't feel bad. You're not alone. A lot of people are having difficulties keeping things straight. It's been a lot of work for just a little bit of information. But the information that we piece together is important. Very quickly, let me list out what we know happened at this point. We know Jennifer left Eva's apartment and used the phone at Janet's. We know that it was Craig Peters who she called from the phone. We know when she returned, she walked back towards Eva's apartment from the east, the opposite direction of the office. We know that Jennifer knocked on Catalina's door. We know that her knocking was interrupted by Red Rock. We know that Youngster and KD were not outside when this occurred. And we know that Red Rock and Housen both came and left from the west, which is the direction of the office, the opposite direction from Catalina's apartment. And lastly, I believe that we know that Jennifer did not follow maintenance man Keith Truesdale into the apartment by jumping over the patio fence. I think that the reason this information can seem so confusing is because it's hard to really understand why it matters. Which leads us to where we stand today, with one very important question to ask. This is Season 10, Episode 6. Did she do it? Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Sky Stream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more. 
all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Skystream. TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Skystream and broadband minimum speed 10 megabits per second. 18 month minimum term. Cut off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday. 18 plus terms apply. We've learned a lot about the crime scene in the last five weeks, which truly is remarkable considering the fact that we have not done a full crime scene reconstruction yet. I'm holding off on that until I received the last element of the case file from Houston PD. What I'm missing, and is now on its way, is a set of photos. At trial, the state only used 29 photos to make their case against Jennifer. But the police case file contains 87 photos. It's no surprise that the prosecutor only presented the photos that supported their case against Jennifer. But the crime scene video that I obtained in Houston in January gives us a little glimpse into the parts of the crime scene that are missing. And I can now see why the state chose not to use them. There will be two distinct segments in today's episode. First, I'm going to do a thorough statement analysis, comparing Jennifer's first written statement with her second statement, the confession. And I'm going to compare those statements to the actual crime scene. Then, I'm going to break down some new information about the scene itself. Things that I've recently noticed and we haven't discussed yet. And at the end of this episode, I'll pose the question to you. Did she do it? Let's begin with our statement analysis. We've already spent two episodes picking apart the elements of Jennifer's statement that cover her approaching the scene when she knocked on the door and spoke to Red Rock, and her actions after Eva returned with the manager. Our focus today is going to center around what happened in between. Did Jennifer walk up to the scene after the murder, or did she enter the apartment and participate in the murder after Red Rock left the area? I'm going to start by breaking down Jennifer's confession. What we already know is that the two men Jen says actually killed Catalina don't exist at least not according to police. Based on their reports, Detective Allen actually did a thorough job of trying to track these two individuals down and ultimately concluded that they're a work of fiction. We also know that Jennifer did not actually kill Catalina herself. Even if she is guilty of participating in the crime, DNA and other forensics proved that, which we'll discuss in another episode. So one of the first questions that I'm asking myself is if Jennifer was involved and knows who actually killed Catalina, then why has she never produced the names? Without a doubt, she could have negotiated a greatly reduced sentence, if not avoid jail time completely, if she just told investigators who actually committed the murder. Remember, she was only 15. The legal age to be tried as an adult in Texas is 17. She was an exception. And according to her confession, She was a 15-year-old who was just roped into serving as a lookout for a robbery by two adults. I really believe that any reasonable DA would have been happy to offer a plea bargain in that situation and at least keep Jennifer's case in juvenile court. But since she only gave the police two fake names, that left her to bear the full brunt of responsibility for Catalina's murder. And with that in mind, let's break down the confession. In Jennifer's final statement, her confession, she says that things went down like this. Two days before the murder, on Sunday, 
two guys that Jennifer knows came by Eva's apartment, Ernest and Tim. Ernest asked Jen about the white Honda parked near the apartment. Jen says that she thinks it belongs to the woman who stays below them. The guys decide they want to steal the car, and they assign Jennifer to be a lookout. The plan was to come back on Monday night, break into Catalina's apartment, tie her up, take her keys, and steal the car. Now, let's stop right there for a minute and analyze that part of the statement. These are the first few things that jump out at me. Number one, where's Eva? Jen says that these two guys who live on the other side of Houston came by Eva's apartment to see her, and there's no mention of Eva. Maybe Eva's at work that night, but that's not really the only problem. According to Jennifer's sister, Kim, the two had run away together just a few days before the murder. They stayed together in different friends' apartments for the first couple of nights while Kim was still with Jen. Kim has never been to Eva's, and Kim didn't return home until Monday. So how is Jennifer alone at Eva's apartment with these two guys on Sunday night when she's supposedly staying somewhere else with her sister? Maybe she was just visiting, or at best, maybe Kim has her days wrong. But then still, this would be the very first night Jen stayed with Eva. And there she sits, in the apartment, with two car thieves and no Eva. Now that part seems odd, but not as odd as the plan. According to the statement, these guys are experienced car thieves. They tell Jen that they need to get the keys to the car because they can sell it for more money if they don't break a window or hotwire it. They decide they want to break in at night, but it's night already, right then, while they're making the plan. I find it extremely hard to believe that these guys would drive from the other side of town, pick out a car that they want to steal, at night, and make a plan to leave and then return the next night under the same conditions to steal it. Why would they not just take it right then and there? Jen goes on to say that the guys didn't show the next night, on Monday. In this second statement, we don't hear a single word about the fact that Jen spent the entire Monday evening and night with Youngster and KD. She jumped straight from making the plan Sunday night, the guys not showing up Monday night, to her waking up on Tuesday morning. And when she describes waking up in this statement, this is where we find our first consistency from her very first statement that has made it all the way through to this, her final statement. Jennifer again says she receives a page from Craig Peters. She says she woke up, washed her face, brushed her teeth, and then headed to Janet's apartment to use the phone. She says that Youngster was sleeping on the bed, KD on the floor, and Eva on the couch in the living room. All of this rings true to me. Her account of this part of the morning is detailed and consistent through all of her statements. It's also consistent with both KD and Youngster statements. Every time we hear this part of the story, it's the same. Jennifer in bed with Youngster, with Katie sleeping on the floor next to them. Jennifer gets a page, she gets up, leaving the two of them sleeping, and then she leaves to go to Janet's to call Craig. And that's important, because I know there's a theory floating around out there that Jennifer was involved in the murder, but committed it with Katie and Youngster, rather than the two made-up guys. But I don't think that's what happened. Now, I'm not saying, and I'm not ready to rule out KD and Youngsters as suspects yet, because we haven't even investigated them, but I do believe that when Jennifer left, KD and Youngster were still asleep. And I also do believe that Jennifer left that morning with the sole purpose in mind of calling Craig.
statement goes on to say that Janet goes to Janet. She calls Craig. They hang up. She calls the phone company. Craig clicks back in. They talk for a few more minutes. And then Jen hangs up and heads back towards Eva's apartment. That, again, is consistent. And then she says that as she turns the corner onto the alleyway by Eva's, she runs into Ernest and Tim. They ask her if Catalina is home, and she tells them that she is. She knows this because she exchanged good mornings with her on the way out earlier that morning. But let's stop here for a moment and think about this. Number one, these guys are supposedly so hell-bent on stealing this particular car that they're willing to get up really early in the morning, drive across Houston during rush hour, and steal the car in broad daylight. Now, there's just no way for me to reconcile that with them not taking the car on Sunday night when they originally hatched the plan. On Sunday, they had a perfect opportunity, but decided to wait until the next night. The only logical reason for waiting would be that they needed supplies, or they needed to put on different clothes, or something that would make the next night a better night. And that would show patience and planning. But then we're supposed to believe that these same two guys get up two days later and decide to steal the car in broad daylight instead. I'm not buying it. And also, why are they asking Jen if Catalina is at home? According to the statement, they run into her as she's walking towards the apartment from Janet's. So why would they think she would know? And on top of that, Catalina's car is literally right there in front of them. The car was parked in the handicapped space right at the end of the alleyway sidewalk, right where it was on Sunday night, according to the statement. So why would they look at the car belonging to the victim that they intend to steal it from parked 50 feet from her apartment and then ask a girl who is approaching the area from the other side of the complex if the victim is at home? Next, as the statement moves along, we have a nice combination of truth and bullshit. The statement says that Ernest and Tim tell Jen to knock on Catalina's door as they wait by the steps. Now I'll read the next part directly from the statement. I went to knock on the front door and Ernest and Tim were by the steps. I knocked on the door and she responded, who is it? I said, it's your neighbor from upstairs. The woman said, what do you want? I was trying to think of something to say when a person I know in the complex called Red Rock came around the corner. Red Rock asked me about the Mexican that stayed upstairs. I said, who, Eva? He said, yeah, that's her name. I told him she was asleep. I told him to go on. Red Rock kept asking me questions, and I told him to go on. Red Rock had some other dude with him, and they walked off. I don't feel like I really need to say it, but I'm going to anyway. How are we supposed to believe that Red Rock and Housen approached the scene with Ernest and Tim outside and neither of them saw the two men? It's just impossible. And that's not to mention the fact that their brilliant plan to get in and steal the car and presumably get away with it is to have Jennifer knock on the door and tell Catalina, I'm your neighbor from upstairs. Jen continues on to say that after Red Rock left, she then sees Ernest and Tim, quote, in the bushes by the patio. I guess maybe she's trying to imply that they were hiding in the bushes, but there's just no way. First of all, Red Rock and Housen would have seen them standing by the steps as they approached. And secondly, there's no way that two grown men could hide out of the view of someone standing on the sidewalk. It's just not possible. 
And that's not to mention the fact that June Sage saw Jen outside knocking on her door before she moved over to Catalina's. And then she saw Red Rock and Housen approach and talk to her. June would have had a clear view of the stairs and sidewalk where Ernest and Tim were supposedly standing before Red Rock and Housen showed up. And that's not to mention the fact that for any of this to be true, Jennifer would have first had to have knocked on the wrong door when she knew exactly which apartment and victim they were targeting. The next three paragraphs of Jennifer's confession lay out the step-by-step details of the murder. This part, of course, is the most important. Does this statement indicate guilty knowledge of the crime Or is it a fabrication created based on information that has been given to her by Detective Allen? So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. As I break down this next segment of Jennifer's confession, I'm going to be comparing it to what we know about the crime scene and to her first statement. At this point in the confession, Jennifer has knocked on the door. Catalina answered her and asked what she wanted. Jennifer then identifies herself as the neighbor from upstairs. So at this point, Catalina has been alerted to the fact that there is someone outside that wants her to open the door. And for that matter, she knows who it is. The statement says that Jen tells the guys that Catalina is home and Ernest says, quote, let's do it. Ernest then walks a few steps up the stairs and jumps over the fence onto the patio. Tim walks over to the other side of the patio and jumps the fence near where it connects to the apartment by the bedroom window. Tim then helps Jennifer over the fence, and she begins doing her job as lookout. Tim then, quote, took the screen off and laid it on the ground. Couple things here. First of all, that's a lot of activity going on after the knocking. During that time, Catalina never tries to call 911, and she doesn't even lock the sliding door. And secondly, the screen door is lying flat on the ground in the crime scene photos. But in Eva's statements, she said that the door was dangling when she saw it. To verify the position of the screen door, I went back to Keith Truesdale's written statement. And he also says that it was lying on the ground and not dangling. Now that may be irrelevant, other than the fact that we know that Jennifer could have picked up this detail just from looking over the patio fence when Truesdale entered the apartment, because that's the position it was in at the time. And also, it's an inconsistency in Eva's story. The statement goes on to say that after Tim removed the screen door, Catalina comes to the door and says, quote, What are you doing? What's going on? Jen then hears the sliding glass door open. 
Catalina starts screaming. Jen sees Ernest force Catalina back into the apartment. Catalina begins screaming for help. Jen sees Tim following behind Ernest, and Jen follows behind him. Catalina is still screaming. And here's a little side note. For those of you who might believe that the scream that June heard was the murder occurring, keep in mind that she heard one single blood-curdling scream, and then it was all quiet. But if Jennifer's guilty, and this is her true confession, then she's describing lots of screaming, not just one scream. Back to the statement. Jen tells the guys to hurry up and get the keys. Tim goes to the dining table, and Ernest has Catalina over by the front door. He's telling Catalina to shut up. Catalina says okay, but then starts screaming again. Ernest then hits her in the head with a, quote, white object. Jen says that she saw the object shatter when it hit her, and then she saw Catalina fall to the floor. Now let's stop here for a second. My first question is this. Where did Ernest get the white object? In the narrative, he has Catalina over by the door. Now, one has to assume that he's restraining her, otherwise she would have unlocked it and tried to escape. So when did he pick up the white object, and where did he get it? And the bigger question that I'm asking myself is why this detail would be left out. You all know at this point that my theory is that the details Jen is presenting came from Detective Allen, and not from guilty knowledge of the crime. And I believe this missing detail fits with that theory. Detective Allen can't tell Jennifer where the white object came from, or for that matter, what the white object is, because he doesn't know. And I think the fact that those details are missing from Jennifer's statement indicates that she doesn't know either. In fact, when she gave her first statement, she didn't even know that it was white. Listen to how Jennifer describes the object in her first statement when she says that she entered the apartment and checked Catalina's pulse. Quote, I could see there was a broken orange red-looking flower pot. There was dirt in front of the lady. I saw a piece of the broken pot laying on her shoulder near her neck. I think she was on her side. When I first read that statement, I assumed that Jen was talking about the orange pot in the living room. But that pot isn't broken. It's fully intact and just sitting there. And then I realize that she's not talking about that pot. She's talking about the broken object scattered about by Catalina's head. The pieces that would have been on or by her neck after the murder, when Jen followed the manager into the apartment, were completely stained with blood. They look orange or red. But as we know, it was actually white. So when Jennifer gives her first statement to Sergeant Smith, before she ever talked to Detective Allen, she thought that the object was an orange or red flower pot. But after she spends seven hours with Detective Allen, she then describes it as a, quote, white object. And why an object instead of a flower pot? Because I don't think it even is a flower pot. It could be a ceramic statue, similar to the one that's still standing on the end table next to Catalina's body in the crime scene photos. Or if it is a pot, then it contained fake flowers that would be very easy to see as Ernest is hitting Catalina in the head with it. If you look at all the pieces in the crime scene photos, you'll see that it has an odd shape, some rounded edges and some squared edges. That's why I think that it might be a statue. 
But we also see near the end table a set of large white fake flowers on the floor, stuck into that green potting foam that's made for such things. Go look at the crime scene photos and you'll see what I'm talking about. The fake flowers and the green foam are large. They would stick well out of the pot. And if she watched this happen inside the apartment, as she's saying she did in her confession, she would know it was a flower pot because she'd see the big fake flowers. And otherwise, it was just a statue. But either way, the first time before she had any influence, she just thought it was an orange flower pot. And she thought it was a flower pot during that first statement because of all the dirt. But that's not where the dirt came from. Now let's go back into the confession. Up to this point, Jen and the two men have hopped the patio fence, Tim removed the screen door, Catalina came to the door and asked what was going on, Ernest opens the sliding glass door and forces Catalina inside and over by the front door. Tim is at the dining table, and Jennifer is lost in space somewhere. She never says where she's standing at this point or what she's doing. Ernest tells Catalina to shut up, she continues screaming, and Jen sees Ernest hit her over the head with a white object that shatters. Catalina then falls to the floor. The statement continues with Jen telling the men that they were not supposed to hurt the woman, that they were only supposed to tie her up and take the keys, which, by the way, would make it a brilliant plan to choose a 15-year-old accomplice that the woman knows by sight, and after she announced exactly who she is at the front door. But that's neither here nor there. The statement goes on to say, that Tim then tells Jen to go get Catalina's purse, which she says is on the dining table, which is where she says Tim was already standing. So Jen looks through the purse and tells the men that the car keys are not in it. She then goes into the back bedroom where she sees a second purse on the bed. The statement says, quote, I think this purse was black, end quote. So she's not sure of the color of the purse that she's grabbing and looking through, but she thinks it's black. She finds Catalina's keys in the purse and notices an H on one of the keys. She gives the keys to Tim, who puts them in his pocket. At this point, Catalina was continuing to scream and was beating on the door. Ernest then hits Catalina again with a flower pot. Now, since the white object is already shattered, I assume that here she's talking about the big orange plastic pot. The statement says that after being hit with the flower pot, Catalina stopped screaming and appeared to be dead. Jen then repeats to the men that it wasn't supposed to go down like this. She checks Catalina for a pulse and doesn't feel one. She says that Catalina is barely breathing and Ernest was still standing there. Then Tim walks into the kitchen and Jen follows him in. I want you to keep in mind here that Jennifer has later claimed that Detective Allen kept telling her that they had her fingerprints in different locations on the crime scene. And also remember that at this point, Allen believes that there's blood in the knife drawer. It later turned out to be paint. So the statement says that when Jen gets into the kitchen, Tim was standing by the refrigerator. Jen says that they need to go. Tim then walks around her and then points to a kitchen drawer that was partially open. Now, if you've seen the crime scene photos, you know that this kitchen is tiny. Tim would have been standing right next to the drawer when he silently points at it. Jennifer then opens the drawer and Tim tells her to hand him the knife that's right next to him. Jennifer then sees some knives under a piece of plastic. This is the plastic where Alan believed there to be blood. The statement says Jen moved the plastic, and Tim says, quote, damn, come on, 
and he grabs the large butcher knife. Tim then walks over to Ernest and hands him the knife. Jen then watches as Ernest stabs Catalina's lifeless body several times. At this point, Jen hears Eva outside asking if everything was okay. Ernest tries to sound like an old woman and replies that everything's fine. I just fell and hit my head, that whole thing. Eva says she's going to go get the manager, and Jen tells the men it's time to go. Then the three of them jump back over the fence. Jen says she doesn't know what Ernest did with the knife, but one of them said that they'll have to come back later and get the car. And then Eva returns. Now there's no mention of how or in which direction the men fled. Okay, so there's a lot to absorb here. Jen seems to give a very thorough and detailed description of exactly how Catalina was murdered. But there's just one tiny problem. That's not how it happened. First, let me just review the obvious issues with Jennifer's confession. Number one, the plan in general. Why not take the car on Sunday? And why do it in broad daylight? Number two, why is a 15-year-old girl included in the plan when the victim knows who she is? Number three, according to June Sage, Jen knocked on her door before Catalina's. That's consistent with someone trying to help when they don't know exactly what's going on, but it's not consistent with someone who has a plan to target a specific woman in a specific apartment. Number four, Neither Red Rock or Housen see the two men standing outside when they stop and talk to Jennifer. Number five, June reports only hearing a single scream. The confession tells of constant screaming. Number six, Tim on two occasions directs Jennifer to grab something for him that he's standing right next to. In the statement, Jen says that he's wearing latex gloves, so this wouldn't be because of fingerprints. Number seven, Jen goes from believing the broken object near Catalina's head is an orange or red flower pot in her first statement to a white object in this one. Number eight, she can't or doesn't articulate where Ernest found the white object or when. And number nine, she doesn't know what color the purse was that she found the keys in. Oh, and yeah, Ernest and Tim don't exist. There's that too. Now I want to share some newly discovered information with you and see how it measures up to this confession. First, there's something I want you to put a pin in for right now. Jennifer never mentions anywhere in this statement anything about Catalina's wallet. We know from the police reports that the wallet is missing, and I'll just let you know right now that it is discovered later. Just keep that in the back of your mind for a later episode. And now, let's talk about Jennifer's statement that while Catalina is lying on the floor, Ernest hits her over the head with the big orange flower pot. Well, that seems to make sense since there's potting soil all around the body, but what Detective Allen didn't have access to at this point was the autopsy. Catalina wasn't hit over the head with the plastic pot. She was hit over the head with the metal stand that we see in the living room in the crime scene photos. The ME describes a wound that matches up to the metal from this stand. Neither Jen or Detective Allen knew that when she signed this statement. Speaking of that orange pot, where did it come from? 
I looked through every crime scene photo that I have and looked at the video frame by frame. I can't see anywhere in the apartment where there are marks on the carpet for that pot or stand. And also, there's just nowhere in the apartment where it would make sense to have such a pot and stand. It's big and the apartment's small. And here's another question. Where's the plant? Did she have a pot of dirt inside of her apartment? I found the answer to these questions in State's Exhibit 13. It's a photo of the patio where we see the Orange Pot's twin outside. As I looked closer at the pot and the metal stand, I realized that there's no way this came from inside the apartment. It's an outdoor stand and an outdoor pot with no plant in the dirt, which actually makes sense because it's nearly November and Catalina's patio faces north. All but one of the pots on the patio either have no plants in them or dead plants in them. Once I realized that, I took a closer look at the crime scene photos and the crime scene video and noticed a trail of dirt going from the patio door to Catalina's body. I'm not talking about dirty footprints. I'm talking about specks of dirt as though they were spilling out of the plant as it was carried into the apartment from outside. While I was studying the living room floor looking for dirt, I discovered something else. Drinking glasses. Yep, you heard me right. There are three drinking glasses scattered on the floor in the living room. You can see one of them in State's Exhibit 21 in the crime scene photos. If you look closely at the right side of that photo, you'll see one of the glasses. It's the only one that made it to trial, and apparently no one caught it. Now, obviously, the glasses got my attention, because why are they in the living room and on the floor? And then I took a closer look at the kitchen. There's a cupboard door open, and upon closer examination, that's the cupboard that contains the drinking glasses. And furthermore in the kitchen, we see that there's an open pill bottle on the counter, and there's a pan in the sink with a cleaning sponge still pressed inside of it. Now, I don't pretend to know what happened here, but this is the only hypothesis that I can come up with. No one knocked on Catalina's door, and she did not meet her attackers at the patio door. The slippers are a red herring. One inside and one outside looks like a clue that she ran out of her shoes as she fled her attackers. That's what I thought, and that's what Detective Allen thought. But I don't think that's what happened at all now. I think her slippers just happened to be sitting on the floor by the patio door, and they got kicked around as the killers came in and out. I think Catalina was in her kitchen, doing dishes and taking her morning meds, when her attackers ripped her screen door off the track and barged into her apartment, for some reason bringing the pot full of dirt and metal stand with them. Catalina was trapped in the kitchen. She's panicking, so she starts grabbing drinking glasses out of the cupboard and throwing them at the intruders. If the murder weapon came from inside the apartment, and that's a big if, then my guess would be that Catalina grabbed it to defend herself, and it was ultimately used against her. I cannot say that that scenario I just presented is accurate. This crime scene is confusing, it's complex, and we have big gaps because we're missing photos. But what I will say is that the narrative that Jennifer gave in her confession is an absolute fabrication, and it is based solely on a first-look analysis of the crime scene. 
It's just wrong. I know that Catalina's killers brought that pot and stand-in from outside. I know that Catalina was hit over the head with the metal stand and not the plastic pot. And I know that somehow during the attack, those three drinking glasses ended up on the living room floor. And I also know that Jennifer Jeffley has no idea that any of that happened. And in my opinion, there's only one explanation for that. It's because she wasn't there when it happened. And so, as promised, I pose this question to you. Knowing what you know now, did she do it? Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth, and Mike can be found at Merb Gaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.